0: Hello, this is the Forced Change podcast. It's a four-part companion piece to a special issue of Facts and Frictions, Fait et Friction, a journalism studies publication produced by J Schools Canada. There are three episodes in English and one episode in French. Our focus is on how journalism educators changed the way they taught during the COVID-19 pandemic. Only a few months after we're all hit by COVID-19, George Floyd was murdered in the U.S., which was not long after Ahmaud Arbery was killed. Breonna Taylor was killed by police earlier that same year. And here in Canada, two days after George Floyd's murder, Regis korchinski Piquet fell 24 stories to her death while police were in her home in Toronto. The video of George Floyd's murder sparked a global movement for Black Lives, People around the world took to the streets, demanding governments, institutions, and people examine and dismantle systemic racism. There were also calls for change in the journalism industry and journalism education in Canada, including students highlighting racism in and out of the classroom and a lack of anti-racist course content. For example, there were journalism students at Toronto Metropolitan University TMU, who petitioned for a Black Canadian reporting course. The school listened, and in the fall of 2020, a course called Reporting on Race, the Black Community in the Media, was launched. Professor Eternity Martis designed and teaches that course. She also brought together the panel you're about to hear. Professor Martis wanted to explore how pandemic fatigue and oppression fatigue impacted the teaching and learning of anti-racist media courses. She brought in two professors from Carleton University's School of Journalism, Adrian Harewood and Duncan McHugh, and two colleagues from TMU's School of Journalism, Professor Asma Malik and Professor Sherry Okeke, who moderated the discussion. To start the conversation, Professor Okeke asked Professor Mardis about her experience teaching that Reporting on Race course.
1: I'm wondering what was it like for you in the classroom at that time um, trying to talk to students and teach journalism students how to report on race after George Floyd and while we were all living through a pandemic at the same time?
2: It wasn't as challenging as I had expected because I think that a lot of students finally felt seen in the courses that they were a part of. And so the majority of my class were students of color and the other part of the class were students who consider themselves allies. And I think for a lot of students, that time period was really meaningful to them because they did want to know how to better report on Black communities. And so we had a a lot of discussions. We had a lot of talks. We had a lot of personal stories shared, a lot of frank talks about what it meant to be a journalist and to take on the burden um, of our industry as an industry that has caused a lot of harm to folks. And so I've noticed over the couple of years that I've taught the course that from that pandemic year of excitement and we're, you know, we're really into this and we want to talk about race and how we can better report on Black communities. Now that we're back in person, it's kind of shifted to almost a sense of just complete fatigue. I think we all thought the pandemic would be over. And we also are still at a place where Black people are being killed continuously by police. And so we're having the same kinds of conversations. And I think students are feeling a little bit conflicted. I think I've noticed that engagement isn't as high as it was in those first two years of the pandemic. And so... I've kind of had to transition from, okay, pandemic learning is going to end to this is our new kind of normal, so to speak. But also there's so much still going on in terms of not getting justice for black people. So how do I then adapt the course to present day?
1: And that's what we really want to dig into here, because everyone in this virtual room is having these challenging conversations and trying to teach new approaches, anti-oppressive practices in journalism to students. So I'd like to open it up to hear about the challenges our other colleagues have faced during this time. And I'd love to start with Duncan.
3: If I see a challenge during this period, during the pandemic and onward, it's been that since George Floyd, students have been hungry for change when it comes to racism, when it comes to diversity, wanting to see these kinds of changes in our curriculum, in our staff, in our approaches as journalism schools. And the struggle has been for the journalism schools to react to that speed of change. Unfortunately, whether it's hiring, whether it's curriculum, the journalism schools have not been able to respond to the calls for change that we're hearing from students. And so that's where I see the challenge has existed for the past couple of years, is the processes within our institutions, Well, we hear lots of lip service with regard to the need for diversity, and we work with well-meaning people who want to see some of that change. The processes within our institutions, the systemic racism within our institutions has impeded the pace of change, and that's made students uneasy and at times angry.
1: Thank you, Duncan. Asma, you wanted to weigh in here. What challenges have you faced over the past few years? I just want to start with what uh, Duncan
4: sort of touched on, which is the call from students. Our students at TMU penned an open letter identifying The need for change in this area specifically, but also in terms of as a journalism school and what they're taught, not just an industry comment, but how this school is a reflection of the industry and what needs to change. It's really important to remember this is a collaborative conversation with students. There's such a push in journalism schools for diversity in students, but they don't see it reflected in the content and in the faculty, One of the ways I addressed this challenge was that fall, when I taught my critical issues course, which was on Zoom and it was a large lecture course, I began the class by actually sharing the letter from the students and actually, you know, engaging with the ideas. And for me, it was important to open that letter to everybody and have a conversation about it and to talk about how I was going to address The issues that came up and how I was going to need their feedback in terms of how to shape the class as well as trust within the class to have these conversations.
1: I want to go back to what you were saying about building trust, because trust is essential for any of these conversations and to make any progress. And I wonder if you could share with us, how do you build that trust in your classroom?
4: It doesn't happen overnight. I, I think that that's really important to recognize. This is just one step, uh, you know, to acknowledge, uh, you know, my own positionality, who I am, understanding that I have limitations, understanding that I'm open to learning from students is very important. I can think of a specific example in that class where I used a word that feels very everyday, but is actually very ableist. Uh, I, I student pointed it out to me. And because of that, I shifted the following week's conversation to talk about ability and disability and coverage of disability issues. And I was able to bring in a guest speaker. And that to me was an example of building trust and recognizing that I have to unlearn also to teach. As
0: the content and structure of journalism programs shifted, so did the role of educators in the classroom. Here's Professor Adrian Harewood, He reflects on his relationship to the students he taught.
5: Yeah, you know, I'm thinking about the fact that in the wake of George Floyd, many people, many young people expected that the revolution was going to happen. Right. And I think I think they expected that there would be transformation in every space and it didn't happen. And that's frustrating that and that that can lead to a certain kind of exhaustion. Uh, and, and it can lead to a certain kind of cynicism. I think part of our role is to try to put things into perspective and to recognize that George Floyd was a moment. And it's part of a very, very long story. And that story has a past and that story has a future and that we're in the process of making that future every single day. And I think it's also important to kind of remind students and remind ourselves not just students because we're we're part of this as well that revolution is not instant coffee right like revolution just doesn't happen like it it takes it's a process and and the work that we're doing each and every day leads to you know the change that we want to see so i found at times that part of my role has been to maybe motivate at times and to kind of keep students feeling hopeful or feeling a sense of possibility. I know that a number of students, uh, racialized students in one of my classes came to me and expressed a certain kind of resentment at the fact that they felt their fellow students were not as engaged and not as concerned and seemed to have a certain kind of contempt and disdain for the struggles of racialized peoples. And some have felt at times a bit alone and have felt as if there's no space for them. So I think, again, part of my role has been to be present, has been to try to listen and to listen deeply. Part of my role also, though, is to encourage the students, particularly those students who are feeling discouraged, that they have a right to be there and that they need to take up space and that part of our project is to assert ourselves and to tell our stories and it's not going to be easy <laughs> like it's it's frustrating and it's hard but that's part of the struggle you know folks have been struggling for a long long time and that's just what we do
1: how do you keep that hope going while knowing that the struggle is a long
5: one well, part of it is just reminding us where we are, you know my my parents were were journalists, I guess in the nineteen seventies they they worked for the main black newspaper in Canada, and that was a time when black journalists of their ilk couldn't get jobs <laughs> like the fact is, there were all kinds of very, very talented people, very very talented much more talented than me, you know, much more talented than many people in our generation who were not able to make space for themselves. But thanks to their sacrifice, thanks to the sacrifices, of those people in the sixties and seventies, I'm here, you know, I'm here and other people are here. Sherry, you're here. Eternity, you're here. Asma, you're here. Duncan, you're here. like, we're here, right? So that suggests that some things can change. And it's not that everything is great, you know, and everything is groovy. I know you young people don't know that term groovy. That's, that's a term we used to use like in the early eighties, you know, but not everything is groovy, right? But, we're here and we can make something new, right? And we can create the future that we want to see. So again, I think sometimes just referencing history can help. Thank
1: you. I want to get eternity to weigh in here.
2: Yeah. Just jumping off of what Adrian said, I think when it comes to taking up space, a lot of students feel like there is no space for them. And so a lot of my racialized students We have a lot of conversations after class and sometimes in the classroom where they say, You're the first black prof I've had and I'm graduating this year. Or I didn't even feel comfortable to speak in my classes or, um, you know, sometimes which makes me really upset is there's nothing for me. Why am I here? There's no way I'm going to get a job. Nobody cares about the stories I want to tell about my communities or my peers are getting published in the star, other mainstream publications, and I can't. So what is the point? And so I think for me to kind of deal with those challenges, I feel like part of it is that because I'm in this position, I'm willing to take on a bit more of a mentor role. And like you were saying as well, Sherry, it does mean changing the course for the next week. So in uh, the fall semester, Several of my racialized students said, I don't know what I'm doing here. It feels hope- It ho- feels hopeless. I don't feel like I have any help. I don't know how to pitch. And so we shifted. It was a course on reporting on race, but we shifted a bit. So, you know, this is how we write a pitch. This is how we pitch stories. And, you know, a lot of J schools I've, I've taught at uh, UBC and I've taught at Simon Fraser a different program. And and here, there's this idea that only one of us can make it. If we're racialized, there could only be one of us. And so which one is it going to be? And what's the point of trying? And so I think in trying to take up space... We as instructors and as educators are also making ourselves available to be that person that they can rely on to be like, okay, this is not easy, but there is hope and there is possibility and I can help you get there because people helped me get there and somebody helped that person get somewhere as well. And so it becomes this bigger network of support that we're trying to do. We're educators, but we're also mentors. We're also offering the hope and the possibility because we are in these positions to do so.
1: Duncan, I'm wondering, are you feeling that need and and pressure to a certain extent to keep students hopes up that they can, in fact, do this and that there is space for them?
3: Always. And that is part of your job as a professor, that to some degree, is to cheerlead and to encourage people to persevere. And, and I've always, as a journalist, I've always had a, a strong belief in the transformative power of a story. You can't be, be thinking about changing the world necessarily with one simple story. I help and, and foster students' going out into Indigenous communities, sometimes for the first time, and having experiences connecting with people in the communities, and then coming back and creating a story that they're proud of, I, I encourage them that it is about the story at the end of the day, one at a time. It's one story at a time, and, and change in terms of larger systemic change when it comes to racism is the same. It's one story at a time, and and um, that's that's what you have to uh, lean into in, in some ways.
1: I have found that a lot of the cheerleading actually happens even outside of class time, outside of class hours. It happens when I least expect it, you know, and I, I get an email from a student or someone's in my office in a bit of a crisis, and then we're working through and it almost feels more critical in that moment, even than in the class. I'm wondering, have any of you felt that in trying to teach you know new practices in journalism anti-racist practices in journalism that it uncovers a lot of emotion from your students.
0: Before you hear Professor malik's answer here it's important for you to know that she is Muslim and she's about to talk about a very tense conversation on who gets labeled as a terrorist in a news story or a headline. It was painful for her because of the rise in Islamophobia after the Quebec City mosque shooting attack by a single gunman in 2017, which was one of the deadliest mass shootings in Canadian history.
4: Yeah, I I definitely feel that. You know, it's hard to not talk about these things with emotion. I've had conversations that students have been that have been very emotional, and students are brave to bring it up in public spaces. So um, emotions can be very challenging. My own included. Like, you know, a conversation about terrorism where a student says, well, they are terrorists and I, I'm, you know, I feel connected to, to this, you know, that's why they're called terrorists. But And, you know, it can be hard to separate that as an educator when you're talking about something that connects you and you feel that you're being challenged or you feel that there's something connected to your own identity that comes up. Balancing that is kind of the magic in some ways, the challenge of teaching really at the end of the day.
1: Absolutely. I mean, we can't deny that there's a a weight that we carry as racialized professors in terms of the material that we're trying to teach, and we're not disconnected from it.
0: As the conversation went on, one thing that came up was how teaching overlaps with caring for students. So Professor Okeke put the question to the panel directly.
1: In your experience in the classroom, in your department's how much space is there for care
5: in journalism education? You know, I'd probably turn that question around and I would say, what is journalism education without care? Right. I what like is that. It, I like what, that. What, 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 what is <laughs> education without care? Care is implicit. It has to be at the center of everything we do. And so if our project is about developing human beings, right. And allowing human beings to realize their full potential, Well, the only way in which human beings realize their full potential is if they are cared for and if they are in it and if they belong, as Asma was saying, if they belong to a community of care, right? Like everything I think has to be grounded in care. Like care is about the kind of relationships that we're trying to cultivate. Care is is just the way in which we approach our work. Care is is how we treat people, people that we're interviewing. Care is what the whole thing. Like that's what human beings are like. That's the whole project, right? The whole project is care. So if we don't have care, then what do we have?
1: I agree with you. And it's certainly an emphasis in my courses. And I'm sure in everyone in this room, in your courses, I'm just wondering how widespread is it? How, how,
5: I'm not contradicting you, Sherry. No, no, no. I'm just wondering how established,
1: what's your sense of how much space care takes up currently in curriculum um, across J schools? Eternity?
2: Yeah, I I think to Adrian's point, it's um, what we're doing requires so much care, not just of the students, but of how they approach their sources. And I think that to me, that's always been missing a little bit from the practice of journalism itself in, in terms of how do we bring care into the classroom, I've been thinking a lot about this because the kinds of courses that we're teaching in my course, we're talking about the injustices and the continued oppression of black folks across a range of identities. And especially for racialized students, it's really heavy. And I can see it on their faces because by the end of the three hours, they're almost slumped in their seats and they come every week. And I, I've i been trying to think about what does care look like? Do I incorporate breathwork into my class? And there are many studies in in a university space that breathwork can help, but that doesn't also take into account the many complex forms of trauma that some students are dealing with, right? I've thought about checking in and checking out. Is there room for that? And I, I think that there should be. The care is sometimes more important than the content and the content can sometimes wait. I love that idea
1: of checking in and checking out. So I've I've been doing the checking in, but I hadn't thought of doing the checking out. Uh, one thing I try to do in my class is I tell them right out of the gates that if they need to get up and leave, they're welcome to leave okay. and come back. And I will find a way to help them grasp whatever material they missed in a way that is safe for them, uh, because I... I just tell them, you know, we all have difficult days and some, some material might be harder to handle on one day than another day. So that's how I'm trying to do it, but I'm eager to learn from the rest of you and how you're doing it. Asthma? To the point about how
4: to give students the options to give them as much, you know, control as you can while still being the professor is kind of key. And, you know, to not make everything mandatory, to not make all the readings mandatory, to be able to give them opportunities to pick and choose what they, you know, what they connect with and talk about, I think is really important. Like that's kind of a way of giving students that autonomy.
5: I think I think care manifests itself in all kinds of ways. I think care manifests itself in how we mark, right? It manifests itself in how we give feedback. It manifests itself in how we listen. Care manifests itself in the fact that students know that you're not just their professor for the time that you're teaching them, right? But you're their professor for this year and next year and the following years and that you'll always be there. Right. Like that's, that's a way in which care kind of informs practice. So I think care is really, it's everything. I think that's something that kind of practice is something to strive for. and It doesn't have to be this kind of new agey thing, you know, it's the real stuff of teaching. Like that's what teaching and living is about. I think.
1: Adrian, can you expand a bit on what you were saying in terms of marking and feedback?
5: You know, I allow, I allow students to rewrite stuff all the time, like I allow them to rewrite papers and tests. And that's just, you know, I, I believe in that because I, I don't think, I think that learning, it's a process, you know, and I, and I think that if we're concerned about the whole person and if we're concerned about educating them, then it's not a one-off thing. So if students are willing to put the work in to rewrite their papers or make changes or whatever the case might be, I'm willing to market. Right. So that's, that's a kind of a practice that I've adopted now that has consequences (laughs) and it means that that's time, right? It's a lot more work. And, but, but that's part of it.
1: I I believe in rewriting. It's something I tell my students uh, a lot is that that's part of what we do. We rewrite and our scripts are vetted. That's part of being a journalist. No one cranks out the final copy on the first try, so I actually like that. But I hadn't thought of it in the context of care, so I find it really interesting the way that that you um, the way that you formulated that, Duncan. I, I'm eager to hear from you on this.
3: Yeah, your original question, Sherry, was about care in the departments that we teach in and in, in the academy in general, and everybody has framed it with regard to the classroom and students. But I think we should also be talking about the care of the professors and the instructors with regard to teaching this material. If there's one thing that I've learned over the years teaching as an adjunct, is that it's really important to just say no. There are an incredible amount of demands upon racialized faculty when they do finally get hired and, and arrive at the academy. And there are many, many requests for speaking, writing, teaching, sitting on various committees, and then the care that you have for your students, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And that can be overwhelming. Because you feel so much of the burden falls upon you uh, when there when there are a small number of racialized professors within a department or or a faculty, I learned this the hard way. But you have to start to develop as a protective measure. You know those two simple letters. And N-O, oh, because if you don't, if you are always saying yes because you believe in the mission and 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 you want the change, it will exhaust you. It will burn you out. You won't be bringing your best self to every project that you've been asked to be part of, and that won't serve anybody either.
4: Yeah, if I can jump in to say wholeheartedly, yes, to what Duncan is saying, through my own experiences, and I'm not that much of a veteran, but like, you know, under 10 years, I still feel um, that, that it's hard to say no, but I think one way to kind of go about that is setting your own priorities for what are the outcomes you want for the work that you do and what's related to the work that you're doing. I think there's this common feeling if I don't do it, it's not going to happen. And I think that that's a really hard feeling to shake because there are so many things that need to be done. But it can't be on individuals. It's a systemic, you know, you take on the systemic inequity of the university, of the institution, and you can't do it as one person.
0: Institutional change, as many on this panel have pointed out, is a big project. It takes time, energy, focus and strong networks of like minded people. But there are practical tools and strategies that can be used in the day-to-day classroom that slowly chip away at the project of changing an institution. Here's Professor Martis sharing the tools she developed through the pandemic.
2: I think one of the strategies that I have is to spend the first Hour of class when we meet, I really try to establish the rules and the feel of the classroom and what the next 12 weeks will look like, which actually asthma helped me a lot with that. You know, I know Asthma, you set the rules and of communication and engagement. And so I try to do that early on so that we're all on the same page. The other thing I try to do, one of my strategies, at least that makes me feel better as someone who also feels somewhat burnt out from teaching this, is that I try to be take a, an honest approach and a transparent approach from the beginning as well. So uh, how are you feeling? I have this, I don't know if anyone's seen it, the rubber duck the rubber ducky scale where the duck is like above water. That's a one. And the nine is the, like the rubber ducky that's deflated and in the water. So we check in in that way. And I'll be like, you know what? I'm i I'm an eight today. I'm leaning towards a nine. And that makes it easier for me as the, you know, the new instructor who feels like I have to do everything and be perfect all the time and be on all the time to also say, you know what? This is hard for me too. One thing I did this year now that we're back in person, which we didn't have the luxury of doing over zoom was I've tried to incorporate several, more in-class exercises. So it gets them up, it gets them in groups. For example, we talked about the ethics of protest. Is it ethical to air or publish the photos of uh, the faces of protesters during BLM protests? And I had photos up on the screen and they went to one side of the room or the other side of the room, depending on whether they'd publish it, And they'd have a conversation. Um, and we did some editing tests where they look for problematic language. I even held a police presser this uh, last term, I I was the communications officer. They read some stories. They asked me questions. I was very evasive, as Toronto police are. And I felt that that helped with the mood and the coping of just kind of sitting there and hearing, you know, week after week, these kinds of horrible things that they need to learn. Last thing I do is at the end of every lecture, I try to give them the tangibles. So we talked about critical issues or we talked about police violence. Here's how you can do more trauma-informed interviewing of sources, or we talk about crime. Here's how we can better do crime coverage and then give them the hands-on along with the guest speaker. So even in those three-hour classes, I try to kind of mix things up so that we're all able to enjoy the space and get up and move. And it's not just, it's more than a lecture. It's interactive for them as well. And it takes a little bit of that pressure off of having to deliver like, you know, a three-hour lecture. And then we're all kind of burnt out and feeling a little bit you know, disillusioned.
1: I'm curious about the discussion guidelines you mentioned and how you established that at the beginning of the semester, because one concern I've heard from some racialized students is how they're going to cope if a non-racialized student says something that is very harmful or painful for them. So, Asma, could you maybe talk a bit about the advice you gave Eternity (laughs) <laughs> on how to set up the 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 um, it's ground rules. It's interesting. So on the first class, I
4: start with some key ground rules about, you know, we talk in I statements, don't make generalizations, speak about your own experience. Uh, things like the goal of this course is just to center voices from the margins. So be conscious of how much space you take up and why you're speaking. That said, there are people who speak when everyone is quiet and regularly and you still need them. So how do you do that dance in discussion. But then I ask them in groups to come up with their own guidelines for how they would like to be recognized and treated in the classroom. And often it's very much related to guidelines that I already have. So it's helpful for them to engage and to express. And that's their way of expressing their fears of what could happen in the classroom. And we're having an open discussion about it, but around talking about a specific guideline rather than them feeling like they have to speak about their own experiences and So, you know, for example, one that I remember and is hard for me is don't call on people in the class. That comes up every year where students say, don't call on me if my hand isn't up. Like, I don't want to be on the spot. I don't want to be tested in that way. And it comes up in different kind of forms. But then I respect that.
0: We wanted to hear from students about this. So we reached out. We put one question to them. What do you need from educators when it comes to teaching new, anti-racist, and anti-oppressive approaches to journalism? Adam Boschman, Natalia Weixel, and Devin Tridnik were all journalism students at Carleton University at the beginning of the pandemic. Here's what they had to say
6: simply yeah just a class discussion opening up the floor to allow students to exchange ideas and to really formulate their own thoughts allow them to think critically about what am i seeing in the news why am i seeing this Uh, how might we be able to do it better how can we bring new approaches to this
2: something that i would really like to see from educators when it comes to teaching these kinds of topics is providing a space for discussion I really like seeing a classroom environment that allows for an exchange between students. However, I think this is only effective when the educator is implemented in that discussion and is guiding it.
6: Giving students the chance to kind of use their education, use the maybe ideas that they've learned in lectures and actually apply it to a discussion and really wrap their heads around it and formulate their own thoughts is, yeah, I think pretty crucial to this.
2: I really appreciate it when somebody is sort of holding the reins of this conversation and is poking certain answers and pushing them further or prodding at certain questions and exposing different ways of thinking because that way the conversation has a direction.
6: Yeah, recognizing the fact that journalism hasn't always served every different type of person equally that there have been very rigid lines that have excluded a lot of people. So I think recognizing that and supporting the idea that there are new ways to do this, that there are better ways to do this is incredibly important.
0: When you're teaching anti-racism and anti-oppression in class, there's a lot of potential to create uncomfortable dynamics. And we know that sitting in this discomfort is actually very important to the work that we all need to be doing. But educators have a role, a very important role, in facilitating a space that feels safe for everyone to contribute. Professor Akeke asked the panel how they actually do that in their classrooms.
1: As professors, how do you manage to teach anti racist approaches in a way that really? Connects with both racialized and non racialized students.
5: I think that the way, at least the way in which I try to approach it is that, you know, we're giving our students or we're trying to introduce them to tools that will help them to understand how the world operates. But more specifically, to understand power, right? Like if you want to understand power, then these are some tools that will help you to kind of unpack things, right? And explain things. So these are your these are instruments that will make you a better journalist. They'll make you ask better questions. They'll make you have the ability to challenge things and to have the language to engage and to understand, right? So, you know, I want all the students, whether they're racialized, non-racialized after these lessons, I want them to feel empowered. Like they should feel empowered because now they can go into the quote unquote battle equipped with the instruments that allow them to do their job. Maybe I'm old school, but I
3: I teach journalism. And at the end of the day, it's about the project that they are supposed to produce for me as a professor, which is a piece of journalism often. And so the proof is in the pudding in terms of whether they have a competency over the material or not, and all of those skills to create a a solid story. With regard to Indigenous and non-Indigenous students in the courses that I've taught on Indigenous reporting, um, I think a lot of non-Indigenous students simply want to know that it's okay for them to be doing the story in the first place, and they need some reassurances about that, I think there's a heightened sensitivity about issues like cultural appropriation, like theft, like voice, and they need to understand and be encouraged that there's a place for non-Indigenous journalists to be covering Indigenous stories. And not only is there a place, there's a dire need, in my helpful opinion. With regard to to teaching Indigenous students differently no they're not taught any differently but they want assurances that their voice is going to be heard um which is something that they don't often feel in a classroom um and and uh and, and so yeah there's a there's a difference there but again at the end of the day it's it's about you know producing a fine piece of journalism
2: I think um, in my class, one thing I had done in my course outline, I separate the recommended readings. And so I have a, a subhead that says for those who want to dig deeper into the topic and then for those who are new to the topic. The first week we talk about the history of slavery. So uh, I have some basic kind of readings and understandings of what slavery is. And that's for the folks who are new to the topic. And if we want to go a bit deeper, if we want to talk a little bit about reparations, for example, that would go in those who want to learn more. And so it breaks it down in a way where they can then in their own time kind of look and read through things and do that if they feel the need. The other thing is that... I'd, I'd never make the assumption that my black students, for example, know that slavery even existed in Canada because every single year I have, regardless of of race, of ethnicity, I have students who don't know that slavery existed. And so one way I try to merge those kind of those gaps that everyone is facing is to talk a little bit more about history. So one thing I did this year was I showed them parts of Toronto. And I said, do you know what this is? And they're like, no. And I'm like, well, this was the, you know, the the printing house of Mary Ann Shad Carey. Or did you know that this was a jail where formerly enslaved people were sent? And they don't know these things. And it's a lot of a history that no one knows. So it puts them on the same page and then they can go to the syllabus later. Um, but to Duncan's point, I, I try to make it very clear that we are in dire need of everyone covering issues of race, of anti-Black racism. It cannot just be on Black journalists and reporters and so making them feel like yes they're equipped and that they don't need to be afraid as long as that they're educated and they commit to the education and the learning of how to do this properly what questions do you ask how do you enter how do you leave and that's something that everyone can learn from.
5: Can I just say one quick thing about trauma and care? Like I really believe in trauma informed journalism. I think we need to be careful though. Like trauma has become a little bit of a buzzword And I think that not everything is trauma, you know, and part of our job also, I think is to encourage our students to embrace discomfort, right? And to, to encourage disagreement. Just because someone disagrees with you doesn't mean that they're oppressing you. Like it just might mean that they disagree with you. So we have to learn how to have hard conversations. We have to develop a certain kind of resilience, right? And I do believe in that. Like I think not everything is comfortable easy and happy you know and not everything is trauma i think there's the danger of it becoming a kind of an out which allows you to avoid certain listening and avoid certain conversations i don't know i don't know what people think about that
4: I'm happy to jump in on that. I think that it's uh these are conversations that are important to have and and to to recognize that not every disagreement is an offense. I think we need to be having that at a faculty level too because I think that going from one classroom to the next shouldn't be a jarring experience in terms of understanding things like duty of care uh, you know ethics of care as a journalist understanding you know how to entertain different perspectives and analyze them and come to some thoughtful insights into issues such as free speech, objectivity, things are at the core of journalistic teaching. And I think that being able to do this cohesively as a school is so important and being able to have a shared sense of what are our core values and beliefs. And I I think I'm obviously speaking very much about my own school because that's my experience. I find that those are challenging conversations. You know, they're
1: not happening among faculty in the way that they should be. Thank you, Asma. We're just about to wrap up and I'm really processing so much of what I've heard and I'm learning in terms of your strategies in the classroom. What stands out to me is the importance of care for our students and for ourselves to be able to continue doing this work. I agree with Eternity that we need all journalists to be learning these approaches so that the burden is less on us and racialized students to do all of that work. Right. And when, when they get into industry. So if you have any closing thoughts, I'd love to hear them. I really echo
4: what Adrian says about hope. I think that it's really important to connect with our students, understand what they're worried about, understand how we can help as a community and help them envision, you know, a future they're already creating. I think that the challenge is understanding that they are going to be shaping newsrooms. I'm very hopeful that that we can continue, you know, moving along. We have to keep up pace with our students and we've got to change the industry from the beginning, like from from the start.
3: I'm so hopeful that I uh, gave up being a part-time prof to become a full-time prof. You know, the next generation are going to be the ones that are are going to change.
5: Again, in, in the wake of George Floyd, there's been some momentum that's been lost, right? And there's not the same kind of energy. In the wake of I don't know more, energy was lost, you know? And we need to kind of keep the pressure on right? The proverbial pressure on, we need to keep on pushing and not be satisfied. Uh, uh, But also just recognize that it's possible to make something new. And and as Asma was saying, you know, building our community, building, building networks, you know, working together to kind of achieve our goals.
1: Eternity, you brought us all together today for this discussion. Any thoughts you have before we let you go?
2: To pull a little research, um, the Pew Research Center has been monitoring the positive coverage of BLM. And found that from 2020 onward, journalist coverage of BLM, now that it's framed in a more positive way, has actually shifted public perception of Black people in America and regardless of race. Um, and so that is a big accomplishment. And so, you know, little by little, we build and we build and then we get to a point where we have completely shifted a perception of a group of people that historically has been negative. And I think that speaks to the work that we're all doing as educators, as journalists here, um, that our students are doing. And it has declined slightly as most things do. You have a big movement and things slow down, but not by much. And I think that that's where we're at. I think this is a sign that what we're doing matters. It's changed things. We've kind of turned a bit of a a corner in that same vein. We're also playing a role for each other. There's a lasting role that we all have here with each other, right? We have this network of people. We all call on each other for various things. And I think that's also important too. And so in this conversation, we're also... I feel very fortunate that we're all on this panel together. We all know each other because when we're all together and we have a support, we also can go into our classrooms and feel better supported, regardless of what university we're at. It's slow, but I think we're making really good progress.
0: And what a great place to end. Eternity put it so well. Little by little, we build. We build by sharing strategies, sharing ideas, and by sharing spaces with each other, even when it's uncomfortable. And that is it from us. This was the last episode of the Forced Change podcast. Et un balado en français existe. Des étudiants et des étudiants Ils font entendre leur voix. Ils décrivent de quelle façon la pandémie a brûlé leur formation en journalisme et comment ils se sont débrouillés. Christiane Alexiou nous amène dans ses réflexions sur une pédagogie empathique et gentille. Chantal Francoeur est à l'animation. Forced Change is produced by journalism students at Carleton University and Universite du Québec à Montréal. It was made for the journal Facts and Frictions, Fait et Friction, and is also part of a research project led by Trish Adette Longo, Chantal Francoeur, Christine Crowther, Shanaz Kermali, and myself, Nanapa Duncan. Facts and Frictions' mission is to promote diversity of discourse on emerging issues and controversies in journalism and journalism education. It's published by J-Schools Canada, Canada's national organization for post-secondary journalism programs. Force Change, the podcast, and special issue were made possible thanks to funding and support from the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada, Carleton University's Future Learning Lab. J Schools Canada, and Carleton School of Journalism and Communication, Faculty of Public Affairs, and the Office of the Vice President. This podcast is produced by journalism students at Carleton University's School of Journalism and Communication. This episode was produced by Sophie Kuyper-Dixon. Our production coordinator is Nathan Fung. Senior producer and host is me, Nanaba Duncan.
3: Thank you for listening.